Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Ravanit Nechama Goldman-Barash teaches contemporary halacha and Talmud at Matan, Pardes, and is a Ramit at Midrash Torah Vavodah. Nechama is a U.S. at halacha. She studied at Matan's Advanced Talmud Institute and in Hilchata, a program for the advanced study of halacha. Nechama, welcome to One on One. It's great to be sitting here with you. Thank you, Yosefa. Good to be here. It's always great to sit with colleagues and people that I feel so comfortable with. So we're going to jump right in. Um, I really want to hear about how you started on your path of deeper textual learning and ultimately teaching. Yeah, that's a good question, um, because I never set out to become a Jewish educator, certainly not a student and a scholar of Talmud and Jewish law. Um, I had a very mediocre Jewish education, and, um, and even at home, my parents studied with me. But uh, I wouldn't say that I was inspired to pursue deeper text study until I went to Michlala. Uh, that was in 1987. And suddenly this- The year, the year after I was born. <laughs> okay, you shouldn't say that, right? I'll start feeling very old. Uh, but really, I was part of a, a fairly new generation that had sprung up in the 70s and then in the 80s of women becoming more engaged in deep and more critical textual engagement. Michlala was not about Gemara, but it is where I was first inspired to even start studying um, Tanakh more critically and more seriously. Dr. Bryna Levy was one of my, uh, was a significant teacher at that point in my uh, journey. And then I went on to Stern and I took Talmud. I wanted, part of it was for feminist reasons. I wanted to show the guys at YU that I could study Talmud. So very much and I wrote articles about women's right to study Talmud and so on and so forth. And then when I moved to Israel in 1991 in the middle of the Gulf War, uh, I was a right. I was toying with medical school. You probably heard that in a few of your interviews. I feel like a lot of the women who became <laughs> scholars wanted to go to medical school at an earlier stage in their journey. Some. I was one of them, by the way. So I was Shani, pre -med. by the way. Okay, Shani Tarragon, yeah. Ravani Shani. Yeah. Uh, you'll hear that a lot. Um, and I was pre-med at Stern. And then I made Aliyah, and I decided to put that on the side for a while and become a biotech writer. I always loved writing. And I studied Talmud at Matan in what was then, I mean, it was the Advanced Talmud Institute, but I wasn't a full-time student. I went three times a week to study with a chavruta. We were in a, a very high-level shear. And, um, and that was it. It was very part-time. I studied at Nishmad. I studied at Matan. I came back to Matan. And it was very much on the side as I was building a career as a professional biotech writer, which was quite successful for about 10 years. But then in my early 30s, two publications I wrote for went bankrupt. It was the, the burst of the high-tech bubble. And I had to decide what to do. I didn't feel like I could write competently in Hebrew. And I was like, wait, I love learning. There are these programs available for women to study more seriously. Maybe even though I'm in my early 30s and feeling a little old, it's time for me to rethink my trajectory. And I applied to three programs, Linda Maum's um, Toinet Rabbani program, Nishmat's Yoetzat Halacha program, and Matan's Advanced Talmud Institute. I got into all three, I'm happy to say, which really gave me a boost because, you know, again, feeling kind of old and, and not as prepared. And I chose Matan because I felt it would give me the best scaffolding. Like I felt like I needed to go back to primary text sources and not jump into halacha or a very focused halachic program. And so um, I began my journey and I spent three years at Matan studying. It was a wonderful three years. Although for the first three months, I came home every day and told my husband, I don't know anything. I don't know how to learn Talmud. I think I'll quit. And he kept saying to me, every yeshiva student feels that way for the first year. And so um, so he encouraged and supported me. And slowly I began to gain a foothold and feel more confident. And uh, I had wonderful chavrutas and wonderful teachers. And I would say the next point in the journey, I was still writing. I did a lot of writing at that time. And the next point in my journey was when Rav Ariel Holland, who was the uh, Maradatra of the program, said to us in our final meeting, you need to find your voice. And I remember thinking, no one's ever told me I can have a voice. I mean, I have a voice. I was always a very, you know, kind of a leader and NCSY and in, even in my community starting a women's McGilla group. But I hadn't thought that I could have a voice in 
teaching Talmud text. And that was a moment where I thought, oh, I think I'm going to pursue this. I think I'm going to try to become a teacher of Talmud text. And um, and the next few years saw a lot of cobbling together of of classes because I taught here and there. Nothing, you know, I was I had no real experience. I I hadn't been in an educator's program, but I continued to study and I began to substitute teach in a lot of programs. I finished my master's degree at Bar Ilan with Dr. Mordechai Sabato, again a teacher at Matan, so that had tremendous inf- impact on me. And I decided to go at that point and do the Yoatzet Halakha program, right? Feeling I needed more immersion in Jewish texts, particularly now in Halakha. And then I finished that and started Matan's Hilchata program, meaning um, while I was teaching, I was continuing to develop my voice, if we want to call it that. And, um, and, you know, over the last, I would say, 16 years, um, I am very proud of the, um, the advancements I've made, both in my own personal studies, but also in uh, the way I uh, make the text accessible to a diverse audience of students from my, you know, 70, 80, sometimes 90-year-old women uh, who sit in the class to 18-year-old yeshiva graduates to non-Orthodox students who I teach at Pardes. And, um, and that has been very fulfilling. I... As you speak, I'm thinking of Rabbi Akiva, uh, because when we come into something later in life, and I want to say sometimes I still feel this way, even though it wasn't it wasn't in my 30s, but when we come into something later in life, we have the perspective of what it means to not know that text. And so I think you're able to bridge learning for all those different groups because, because you know what it's like to come at at it at a different stage. And because when we come at something later, we we defka are somewhat sometimes less burdened by by other voices. And so it's it's a gift in some sense. We feel frustrated because well, what happened the first 30 years? I wasn't doing this, or I'm coming in late and I have to make up for lost time. But usually what happens is that we make up for lost time. And this is true in I think all different fields, but you're able to create that bridge. And you have a sensitivity to the text, even more so because you came in at a different stage of life with other training already in your mind. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. And I feel that um, I'll say something about the world of, of Torah study for women. I feel somewhat grateful. This is both the, in some ways, the frustration, but I think the the schut or the, the, the positive. Um, there isn't as clear a trajectory of how to study as in the world of um, male men's yeshivas. So for instance, at Gush, it's very clear, even though there obviously is some differences, but how Talmud is studied. And I feel like I had the permission to study academic Talmud and to study a little bit of the brisk method and then to study a more literary approach. And I was able then to synthesize between different ways of approaching the text. And like you said, part of it is coming later to the game, right? I came in my 30s. I was already an adult. I had a family. And so I had a little more confidence in my own agency and my own ability to bring that self into my studies. And I also felt that I had more flexibility, that I didn't have a rush yeshiva that I would be betraying, if that's the right word, right? Or a even a, a PhD advisor who I'd be betraying. I brought some academia in, but I didn't go on to do a doctorate. I brought some of the yeshiva world in, and I brought some of myself into synthesizing between those worlds. Would you say that your professional development developed in a way with your family life, that there were different chapters that happened there that enabled you to be freer or more flexible? Yeah, that's a good question. And that speaks to the uh, the, the fact that I was in my 30s. Um, when I started Matan, um, my daughters were nine, seven, and five. And I had my fourth daughter um, the second year I was at Matan. Now, it's interesting because I felt it was a program, and it really was a program, that very much took motherhood into consideration. Um, the program finished at 3.45, and we were allowed to leave a little early to get there for my own pickup, right? You know, like very considerate of working mothers wanting, not working mothers, but mothers of small children. If you had a sick child, it was understood you would take a day. Um, my children remember that as a turning point in which I was no longer home. Oh, right? wow. Now, I wasn't a stay right. And I wasn't a stay-at-home mother. My kids were always in Saharon in after-school daycare because 
I was not one of these mothers who looked fondly at them coming home at one o'clock and then like having a whole yeah, afternoon. I just want to clarify for those listening in the States that school ends very early in Israel <laughs> and daycare does. ends at two o'clock. Right. So after school programming means that they're there until four or maybe until 4.30. So let's just not, this isn't learning Torah until seven o'clock at night. Right. That, that right. would no, be nice, still, but that's not the four. case. We're talking about after school daycare. So, um, so you know, my kids were always in after school daycare and I was a really good mom from four until bedtime. We'd go to the park and picnics and all sorts of things. But, um, but they remember that as wow. like I was no longer home, which shows that it did have an impact. They were aware that my focus had shifted, obviously, and they remember that. And it is true that my youngest was born into a period where I was really trying to move ahead professionally. So on one hand, my kids were older. And so I thought it would be easier than having a lot of little babies at home. On the other hand, I will acknowledge that I was personally more fulfilled and happier, but there's no question that I was less available. Also, because when you're beginning to teach in gap year programs, one year programs, you end up taking the worst hours, meaning they yes. give you the night seder and they give three you o'clock three o'clock in the afternoon, in the afternoon <laughs> and you don't feel like you can negotiate so much. So I look back and I realize there is some truth to uh, their claims. On the other hand, you know, I, as a feminist, as a woman, as a woman who, uh, you know, felt the tedium of the small children in the home life was looking to kind of find professional, intellectual, religious fulfillment. I was hoping that that would infuse the home with, uh, with some of that, which it did. But, um, but yeah, there's always a price to pay. Uh, that really brings me, uh, my kids are almost exactly those ages right now. And it's funny because last week, my second daughter, I also have four daughters. The other day she said to me in Hebrew, she says, Ima, I know what you love. And I said, what? I thought she was going to say me or the baby. And she's like, learning Torah. <laughs> I was like, you know what? If that's the message you're coming with, then I am feeling blessed. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I said, you know, I, I love all of you. She's like, no, I know, I know, but you love learning Torah. And my girls are very proud of me, even as, again, they are, uh, you know, they'll express their, and girls do that. This is what girls do. They express a lot. <laughs> They express their opinions and what you've done wrong and what you've done right sometimes a lot. And uh, they're far kinder to my husband in many ways, which makes sense. Again, you know, they, our expectations for our mother yeah. are obviously mm -hmm. different. Yeah. Okay. Uh, along that path that you that you had and that you still have now a as a teacher, can you point out a, a significant role model or two that were dominant in that process or that helped guide you? Yeah. So, um, I'm going to say Nechama Leibovitch, even though I never, I, I met her, I mean, I met her once, I sat in, I had the school to sit in a class she taught. But it's interesting that the fact that we had the same name, and this goes back to way before I went to Mechala, this goes back to actually my childhood, knowing there was a female Torah scholar whose book sat on my parents' shelf, oh, wow. who they, and, and I actually used some of her Torah at my bat mitzvah, if I think about it, that had an impression on me. That wow. left an impression on me. Um, so I would say that that was there, this idea that I used her Torah, that Nechama and Nechama and so on. Um, another role model undoubtedly was my grandfather, who um, who loved learning and who I used to sit next to while he learned. And I saw his love for learning Torah. Uh, and my father, who finished Shas a number of times, those were definitely very close role models, then again, I can't say it was active. It wasn't that I actively made a decision. But if I think about the the influences, um, my mother was more of a Tanakh person. So I can only say that I think the, you know, the, the vision of my father studying Talmud definitely affected me. And my father encouraged me I mean, to come to his Gemara Shir, uh, to learn Gemara. And so I had that influence. And I would say when I got to Matan and then Nishmat and then back to Matan, the women I was learning with had tremendous influence. It wasn't like there was one rabbi. There were rabbis who definitely influenced me and, and inspired me and encouraged me. But I think a lot comes from within the world of uh, female Torah scholarship and seeing the kinds of women, whether it was Sarah Boimel, who runs the Daf Yomi here, who was my chavruta for two years uh, yeah. and is older than me. And right, you know, yeah. having having the role models of older women with grown children coming back to the Beit Midrash, whether it was um, some of the younger women who I studied with, who, again, at different stages, sometimes before marriage, um, that I think had an effect on me, this vibrant world of female Torah scholarship. 
I want us to shift into into your current work, teaching in uh, in gap year programs and and beyond that, and also students who are older. I'm curious, in your years that you've been involved in the learning and teaching world, what are some of the phenomena that you've seen happen or, or shifts that have taken place specifically regarding women's Torah study? What I'm hearing and and noting is the influx of women's voices adding to the conversation first and foremost in the areas that most affect them. And so I really, if, if I want to give one example, and this already dates back to the 70s and the 80s, Agunot. In other mm-hmm. words, you have it, you know, orthodox feminist organizations, but not only, beginning to really aggressively question the need for maintaining a structure that is so unbalanced, and I'm going to use a strong word, unfair to women. Yes, there are halakhic solutions. Yes, there are wonderful rabbis who have always been sensitive to the imbalance. But I, I it doesn't surprise me that first and foremost, women began vocally and at times very aggressively protesting the, um, the lack of uh, halakhic solutions that they felt were available. And, uh, and that came from feminism, learning text, right? Women having access to text and, um, a lack of fear in confronting rabbinic authority. Mm-hmm. And I think all of that is very much born of, uh, post 1960s. So that's first and foremost. But that already was a fight that was in place before I came, uh, to the Beit Midrash. And it has continued now with many women that I respect and revere and, uh, in my, you know, and, and are friends of mine, right? It's not, yeah. you know, and are, are, are my colleagues and my friends. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Dr. Rachel Levmore's work in the halachic prenup has been, uh, uh instrumental. And I, I feel like it's worth calling that out. And, uh, and many of the Matan graduates have gone on to do serious work in Agunot. But there are other areas that are also very interesting. I would say Nida comes to mind, right? The mm-hmm. idea that you have Yoatzot Halacha and now other parallel programs, including Matan and Lindemalm and, uh, and so on, who are graduating women with expertise in NIDA. And that unlocked a flood of questions and challenges that never existed because suddenly women were being allowed to not just answer questions, but ask questions in a way they never did before. Um, if I want to look at one interesting example, it's the fight over mikvah and, um, what a tefillah or immersion in the mikvah was going to look like. And, um, and that too was born out of female text study in the female Beit Midrash. You're speaking which, to with a, with a mikvah attendant. I'm about to yeah. explain this idea that, um, a, a movement was born out of the recognition that the mikvah attendant, the balanit, is not halachically necessary, right? The, the yeah. real concern is that no hair flowed out of the water and women started recognizing that they could do that without anyone present with yeah. electricity. And, and so that halachic solutions were in place before, in before place, the idea of a balanit. Before the idea of the balanit and the, yeah. the shulchan aruch. And so um, really what you're seeing is a re-examination. You see it with women's Megillah reading, with Torah reading, meaning a re-examination of sources through the lens of not just academic feminists, but orthodox women mm-hmm. who are committed to halacha, yeah. uh, beginning to find uh, uh, first of all, room to, to examine and explore and engage and express. And, um, and I think that has very much been a, uh, a, an interesting progression that, of course, on one hand threatens the whole structure. From my perspective, it enhances and deepens the whole structure. Uh, I'm thinking about what that means for the future. Does that mean that women will only become interested or more, uh, firmly planted in the halachic world when they're in their 30s. You can't compare somebody who's who's based in the Beit Midrash, who grows up in that world from the age of, of a young age, let's say 15, 16, versus someone who comes in much later. There are We can speak about it, but I think that you and I would both think that it's a certain bidiyavad. It's it's not what we initially would want for, for a religious leader that they come to it later in life. We have our models, you know, we have our, our Rabbi Akiva's and, and others, but is that what we want? So, you know, I'd like to to bring up a few thoughts I have on the matter. I hope it'll come out in some sort of coherent manner. I think one question we have to ask is, what is the goal? Meaning, and, and you know, to say, well, the goal of women should be like men, and we should just do equal programs. 
well, it's an opportunity to really think more deeply about what is the goal of Torah education. And like you already brought up earlier, men's programs have begun somewhat evaluating what Torah study looks like for men because so many young men are not responding to the intense six to eight hours a day of Talmud study, and and they can't keep it up, and some of them can't even begin it. So we've idealized, um, maybe because of the numbers, this world of male yeshiva study where everyone starts at a very young age, but the reality is it's still a model that's for the excellent. It's an elitist model, and students who have ADD or um, learning disabilities really suffer from that model, and that has forced uh, even the Haredi communities to begin offering schools that are more flexible and more, um, not just compassionate, more modular in terms of their educational vision. So, um, so you know, the question is, what is the goal? Is the goal to create Rashi Yeshivot? Is the goal to have the kind of learning that intellectually and spiritually stimulates and inspires so women, as they build their lives, have a textual anchor upon which to uh, to make decisions and ritual and practice and, and, and then bring it into the families they create? So, you know, I, I, I don't I don't believe it's a system that fosters mediocrity. That is not fair. It's also a structure that is relatively new. We're talking about 100 years, maybe a little bit more, in which women were introduced to an institutionalized world of Torah study. And there have been a lot of questions about Torah study and what it leads to for men and for women, post-high school, post-yeshiva, and so on, given how many men and women go on to become professionals and leave the world of yeshiva in order to support their families. Okay, so I think my first question is, what are the goals and um, how can we foster excellence? And, And at the same time, I don't want to lose the students who are not at the top 5% or 10%, meaning I want Torah study to be accessible for all women, regardless of background and learning ability. The second issue that I think needs to be looked at, and this speaks directly to why perhaps there aren't women at the top ranks of like, you know, uh, post-game, right? You, you know, Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav uh, Ovadia Yosef. Why isn't there a female when we have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who intellectually could have yes. paralleled them? Mm-hmm. If she had become a Talmud scholar, yeah. perhaps she could have been that kind of Talmud scholar if there had been that kind of opportunity for her, right? Um, and again, that speaks to the goal. Is that our goal to have women at the highest echelons of rabbinic authority in Psak? I think we're far away from that for a lot of reasons, um, both because we don't have yeshivot who will allow that kind of study, but even more so, we don't have communities who are ready yet for, for that kind of leadership. I'm not saying it's impossible or very far off. As I said, we have women in the Supreme Court and almost all countries, and that requires the rigor intellect that a posek has. And the question is, do we want to bring that into religious structure? I want to talk more about the majority of men who go on to be rabbis or rabbinic leaders, which I think is within reach for women. And why are the institutions, the, the women's yeshivot, not, they don't always have the intensity in terms of the years and hours of study um, you know, why is that a, a chisaron? Is that a, is the, is there anything we can do about that? And, um, and I think that, you know, it speaks to the problem of the lack of uniformity of what it means to study in a men's yeshiva. What is smicha? What is ordination with every institution having their own requirements? So there's no uniformity. It's not like medicine or law. Meaning I find it interesting that men who will support their wives going through medical school and residency, which certainly requires them being out of the home for long hours, overnight call, right? Um, when it comes to law and to start to interning and to spending the years but till they you end with a salary. When they end with it, right? It's Which true. Is a huge We're going to talk about end with a salary. Then you will find, even in the more yeshivish world, men who are willing to support and in-laws and a whole structure that is willing to encourage women to marry, have children, help with the children. Like you said, you end up with a, a doctor, a lawyer, and so on. You're not finding, first of all, a clear path of study, right? You know, yes. as far as what yeah. you need to do to become a rabbi, the standards are very wide and varied. And you're not finding the support um, 
for women to take that path from the greater community, get, you know, garner, garnering the whole family to come and help while I study for this. Maybe again, to study for an exam, you might get your in-laws to come in, but to go to night Seder every night, uh, there's not going to be the same kind of a support and recognition. And I think part of that is because the standards aren't the same. Meaning in other words, you know, some, some programs I can get to me in a year, some programs is going to take me five years. Meaning like there isn't the clear medical school path towards doctor. And, um, and as a result, I think that there's both a reluctance. You don't have the salary at the end. And, um, and, and what am I going to end up with? And rabbi, well, women can't really be rabbis. So what am I, I'm going to teach? Well, do I really want to? I could teach now before I, I teach now before I go down that years. path. So I think, you know, I've spoken to, to a few issues that are surrounding this question. What are the goals? What do I do when I get there? And, um, where is their opportunity? And at the end of the day, um, is there enough support from within the communities? And I'll just say, I'm not sure how many men are encouraged to be rabbis. I was going to say, you right? know, it's not I, just a women. man who has already studied for a few years, and it would now mean that he's not home in the evenings and he's not going to get a bigger salary at the end because he's going to do it. I would say that if I was his wife, I would probably not, not convince him to do that. But I, I wonder how much support he would get also. I'm sure at a certain point there is a, a discouragement for men when it no longer has any sort of clear purpose. Yeah. So and you have life's responsibilities already on your shoulder. Absolutely. And then there's ideology, meaning we want um, some of our brilliant students to become rabbi. Rabbi still has with it yes. a dignity and a respect and a sense of shlichut, of mission to the Jewish people. Um, so, you know, nonetheless, you know, women will be willing to marry and become part of a community where my husband's the rabbi and I'm the rabbinit or the rebetzin who is guiding, you know, working in the community. And so um, you know, the question is, can we begin creating, an, and it has begun, models for women to take on that kind of pastoral leadership within communities? Are husbands and children and families willing to kind of uh, pay the price that is needed for yeah. that kind of, of shlichut? With that in mind, Nechama, what would you like to see happen? If, if I can, you know, paint the world in Nechama's vision. Yeah. So uh, I want to see, you know, more women's voices. I want to read more women's voices. I want men to begin looking at women as partners. In other words, I'd like some of the hierarchy that emerges because women are exempt or excluded from certain institutions. Beit Knesset is one of them. Um, I'd like men and women to work together to think of, again, regardless of where you are, whether you want partnership or you want the traditional mechitza, it doesn't, I understand there are differences of opinion, vast differences of opinion, and this often pushes buttons. But I would really like men and women to think about partnerships when they build orthodox religious community, halachically observant communities, uh, in the same way that men and women today build partnerships in the home where it's no longer obvious that the woman is going to have a hot dinner waiting for her husband. Some families do that. Again, sometimes it's the man who has the hot dinner waiting. But, uh, but the reality is in the families that we create, men and women look at it as a partnership in dividing the housework and the childcare. And I would like some of that to accept extend to what does the shul look like? What does the community look like? What does the Beit Midrash look like? And I think, notice I'm not talking about, I'm not using egalitarianism. It's a little bit different. Yeah. But it means that- Saying so um, take a model from the home and bring it outside the home. Yes, yes, yes. And I think the equal but different, once you already say the but different, you it's already not equal. So I do want more equality, even though it's not always going to translate for halachic reasons into sameness in the same way that gender matters, meaning it, it matters for a lot of reasons, but it doesn't have to matter in creating hierarchy. And I think there is still too much hierarchy in the way religious institutions function. And if, if you'll allow me, I'll actually give you a, an example. And I think it happens even when um, you have the best of men who are super respectful. Um, I have a friend who works in an educational institution, a religious educational institution, and the men are directors and the women are secretaries and coordinators, right? And maybe there's one woman in the higher admin. And if you point that out to the men, they don't even really know what you're talking about. What do you mean? Of course, we respect women and they're coordinators and we, we love the women, but they don't realize that because they've grown up within a religious environment, it almost happens without noticing that the men become the directors. Yeah. And 
Why not call the women who are coordinators directors? It comes with a higher salary. It comes with a higher title. Many times the coordinators are doing the job of directors of minahalim, right? Of administrators. And yet they're not giving the recognition. And it's very hard for religious men to sometimes even see that because they are the most respectful, right? They are respectful to the women, but they don't realize that there's a world of privilege that they almost are born into without even realizing it. And then suddenly you're working in environments in which um, the top admin are men, meaning and the women- saying are saying the, the environment then copies the, the internal structure that exists there to begin so. with. And But I would say something that maybe is less popular is a lot of times the, the women don't want that. Yes. They don't want yes. that. So yes. we, we can't, yes. I, I yes. really, and I say this, I really have learned a lot from my husband. I, I say that in a real way. I really, I really have. And I think one of the things he often will point out, and the many things he points out is that you can't also put something on people who don't want it. And so it's a question why they don't want it, the chicken and the egg. Is it because they didn't grow up seeing that or because they are have, doing other things right now so they're not interested in that title because with the title comes more responsibility that they're not interested in it. Of course, it's not because they're not capable. They're capable. They're doing it in seven other realms at the same time. But um, Yosefa, I am going to, you're making an excellent point. Um, and again, the hierarchy is born not only of those who are perhaps uh, the more privileged right within the hierarchy, but also by those who accept it, who yeah. feel that it's good for me to be in a lesser role so I can focus on other things I want to do and not feel the conflict. Absolutely. I don't, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful or put down, uh, choices that individuals make. I do want to quote a, a dear colleague, Rabbah Yaffa Epstein, um, who, who pointed that out that not enough women are interested in executive level positions. Part of it is a lack of, uh, confidence, the sense that, can I really do that? Do I want to do that, uh, you know, feeling insecure or inferior. Part of it is the time. I, I have enough juggling my work-life balance. I can't remember who wrote that remarkable article. She was a Jewish woman. She went to work for Hillary Clinton for a year. Do you remember who that was? It was an excellent oh, article. I, I read it, but she I was a professor at like Princeton. We're not yeah. talking about someone who was like sitting home and like, you know, tending to her geraniums, right? She was clearly <laughs> an extremely ambitious, successful uh, uh, academic. And she went into politics. And I think she went for one year and she had, if I remember correctly, one child. So again, think about all the families we know yeah. over there, four or five, yeah. six, seven children. And um, and she had to go live in Washington during the week and come home for the weekend. And her husband totally supported her. And after a year, she felt the price paid by her child was too much. Mm -hmm. And so she reflected on the inability of women to be able to reach those higher levels of uh, of 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 power of executive decision making of of administration whatever it is politics um and and that sense of what what is that because women you know are needed differently at home is that because and and there was a partnership you know at home yeah. and she said Hillary was very accommodating but the work had to be you had to put in the hours and um yeah, I don't know. So it's not only in religion. I do want to say, yeah, yeah. it's important I, to recognize I think that it's, it's not only yeah. religious institutions. I think it is it is definitely reflective of the way many religious institutions run, meaning because it, for a lot of reasons, we've touched on some of them. But how many women are CEOs, right? Again, we still, the numbers are not the same. We have not reached equality in law firms and in medicine more. So it's interesting where yeah, women there have are been fields. able to make yes, there are fields where where it's, inroads it's more and balanced. women have chosen or have not been able to. I think that for the women who want to reach the top, they're faced with a world where the infrastructure isn't there or the path isn't clear, and that's frustrating for them. But I would even say for the majority of women who aren't interested in that, for all different reasons. Things are okay. Right. And and because they're the majority, for those who want something different, you're constantly facing a frustration. Uh, but I think that it's it's both sides. It's both the reality of where the population lies, and it's also with a certain infrastructure and a background that exists. But we, we could go on about this for yeah. a long time. I think yes, that this is, a, this is a conversation with no answer. It's a conversation that's constantly shifting because yes. the world we're living in is constantly shifting. Yes. I want to shift and talk about a little bit of your your writing, your your book that you're okay. that's underway. Mm -hmm. How far are we? Percentages? So no, I I more or less I have um what will hopefully be nine chapters. I am now uh, I've read through six. I'm happy with them. Um, my husband's gone over them, and now I'm up to the last two chapters that I want to just read through the drafts and and rework. Um, so I'm I'm the, I'm getting there. You're Meaning getting it's there. definitely okay. taken me longer than I thought it would. How long has but, it been? 
It has been almost three years. Okay. Um, three years with still working far more than I probably should have. On the other hand, the fear of having too much empty time. Um, I often find I'm more productive when I have too much to do rather than when I don't have enough to do. I can relate so to that. while I thought about taking a semester off, I was very nervous about waking up every day and at the end of the day having done nothing. And so <laughs> I ended up skewing uh, in the opposite direction. Um, but I don't think that's writing is a process. I wasn't really prepared or aware of how arduous it was going to be. Meaning I thought I would be kind of taking material that I had already taught over years and years and years and worked through and kind of just translating my lectures onto paper and writing is a totally different skill set. And I was a writer and I, yeah. I still, you know, I wrote for many, many years. I'm but a then you were writer. creating a, as you wrote, you weren't taking what you have already and then putting right. it into writing, which is another process. Very different process. I mean, I still write for the Jerusalem Post every couple of weeks. Many, I, I, I have uh, thank God the ability to write, but um, but this was a totally different process. And even going back and reading the drafts, I'm like, no, 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 this doesn't read well, right? You yeah. know, like I'm hearing my voice, but yes. it doesn't read well. So, um, you know, I'm making progress, and I hope that uh, I will be done by the summer. That's my new goal. Let's hope. Okay, and and tell us a little bit what it's about, and what what is your contribution that you want to make with this book. Uh, so the book is about, uh, as I said, it's about gender and halacha, particularly women and halacha. And I would say it bridges um, a two genres, and so it, it is a voice that is not really heard. The genre of feminist academia, which is very critical, very scholarly, um, sometimes very angry, um, looking at the rabbinic world as very you know somewhat misogynistic and uh, unfair to women, um, and then you have the what has traditionally been the orthodox voice, which is very apologetic, like, no, you're not really understanding those texts properly. They don't mean that. Really, Judaism loves women and values women, separate but equal. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I'm trying to do is take, as I said, some of my academic training and my Beit Midrash chain training um, and bring a critical and feminist perspective that is, um, I'm trying to be, again, clear in my, uh, in my readings. It's a voice I've developed and also respectful and looking at the process, meaning looking at certain topics through the lens of a, a woman who is, has been immersed in the world of rabbinic text. And I often say to my students, I'm much less angry than I used to be. Um, I'm <laughs> not apologetic. As, as one gets older, I'm not apologetic for the text and I refuse to, uh, ignore some of the, some of the, I'm trying to think of a, a word that does not sound too angry. Um, some of the complicated messages that come up through uh, rabbinic attitudes towards women. Um, and so I, I present them, I discuss them, I look at what I think is a trajectory of an uh, interpretation that takes place from the Talmud through the contemporary, uh, contemporary world today. Um, and so I think that that voice has not been um, heard enough. Can you give us one example of something uh, of a sugiya from the book or, or one, I'm sure that again, one example is a whole chapter, but one example to have a, a better understanding of what you mean. Yeah. So um, in fact, today, this morning, I taught a class and I taught the erva sugya, the sugya about nakedness, um, that is often quoted out of context. Uh, this idea of the voice of a woman is nakedness and the hair of a woman is nakedness. And I teach it very scaffolded. In other words, I always have my students and in the book as well, I go back to look at the Talmudic text that leads up to those um, lines in the Gemara um, in order to focus on uh, what is clear to me the Gemara is talking about, which has a lot to do with male perceptions of erva, meaning erva is very uh very closely defined as the nakedness of the male and female sexual organs, right? The things that are uncovered mm -hmm. in order to have prohibited sexual relations. It has become, however, a kind of catch-all phrase yeah. for women's bodies or women's voices. And uh, what I like to do is first go back to the Talmudic sources and talk about the earliest interpretations, which very, very carefully defined it, very narrowly defined it, very much saw the voices of the Amoraim who make those statements as personally reflective on uh, what female presence means to men, meaning, you know, whether it's when they're saying Shema or not. Mm -hmm. And only really much later does it become um, exploded into the modern discourse of female dress codes, right? Mm -hmm. It's very much on the man. 
He has to be aware of what his sexual triggers are as opposed to covering up the women. So it's very important for me often to show where the rabbinic texts are situated and then the journey they go on as we begin to interpret them, because often lines are pulled out and, you know, kind of thrown out as if that's the only interpretation. I I actually, with Kol Isha, which uh, if we talk about the voice of a woman is nakedness in the name of Shmuel, um, if you read the Talmudic text, he's talking about the speaking voice of a woman. And then you have, I, I read a rabbi, I don't want to name him, who said, oh, for forever and for always, the singing voice of a woman has been prohibited. Well, that's just not borne out by a textual analysis. I know that's how we present it today. But, um, but sometimes it's helpful to gain agency and even perspective if I can go back and begin to trace the interpretive process. And how does that impact one's observance of Elicha? Because so, then there's, there's, there's going to be a, a cutoff between how it might be, I would say, the pshat, right, or the the mm-hmm. plain sense of the Gemara versus how halacha has developed over time. Does that not further a rift between them? So, you know, if you're talking about what happens as we get to the contemporary voices, again, I have traced the trajectory, kind of a history of halacha and how mm-hmm. interpretation works and, and where the contemporary voices are today. Um, you know, I would say what I said this morning and what I've all Shabbat, I was talking about this with my students. Um, modern Orthodox students are not convinced by this, meaning it's not like I'm going to convince or not convince, and that's not my purpose. I'm not coming with a book that is meant to be a psak halacha. I'm not, I'm coming to discuss halacha, mm-hmm. observe halachic interpretation, uh, come to whatever conclusions I come to about where we are and why we are where we are. Um, in the Haredi and the Hasidish communities, uh, there obviously is tremendous social pressure in addition to a lack of textual engagement with these sources, but we have epically failed in modern orthodoxy because when our critically thinking students, and it doesn't matter what school they go to, begin to ask, show me the sources, we can't ignore these sources, right? And so um, many, many, many in modern orthodoxy choose not to dress according to uh, the dress codes that are presented. Many do, but some move to the right, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, be, they move more to the right where there's more of a social uh, structure. And part of it is because uh, I think two reasons. There isn't enough honesty about the starting point of the sources. I think sometimes acknowledging where the conversation started is um, avoids the apologetics and is more clear. Yes, you're right. What you're feeling, that really is what's happening in the text, what you're percent. Mm-hmm. And now let's talk about if there's legitimacy or how there's legitimacy and so on. Um, and so that's that's part of the process I go through in the writing. That's essentially what I'm talking about. I'm trying to acknowledge um, the legitimacy of the interpretation, even as I acknowledge some of the questions that such an interpretation brings up. Has, has writing this book brought with it any catharsis for some of the sh- questions you've struggled with over the years, or has it surfaced them in a way that creates more frustration? Yeah, both. Because I'm already building up frustration both. a little bit by what both. you described before, both. because because you tell you tell someone, well, that really wasn't what was intended, and then and then so what are you left with afterwards? Yeah. I want to hear about yeah. your personal your personal piece. I would on that. say it's both cathartic and frustrating. In other words, it it's what I've been doing for 30 years, which is constantly trying to find myself in the rabbinic text, <laughs> in the halachic text, don't we all? Uh, going back. Oh, right, don't we all? Uh, and I'm always drawn to the sources that are about women and about me and about my struggles and. Um, you know, I I find honesty or again, my perspective on honesty, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to impose some people will disagree undoubtedly with my interpretation. Um, I hope you're you're ready for that. Yeah, I I hope so. It could be why I'm dragging (laughs) my feet so much. Just don't read the, don't read read the the criticism, right? Uh, Yes, there, there will be. Um, I think it's been both cathartic and frustrating and I'm hoping though it will, um, help some young women who are struggling I'm sure find validation yeah. and find room to uh you know to to take upon themselves whatever they're trying to take upon themselves because mm-hmm. I'm giving them a broader platform. I'm I'm sure that it will and I'm sure that you just like you have students who love and appreciate your class you're going to have many more than that who will find this book to be a resting place for a lot of the things I've been thinking about so I'm sure that'll happen. Okay. And you are a wonderful writer so I'm sure it's going to be it's going to be written beautifully. Um I would love to move on and hear the text you brought to share with us today. Sure. Okay, so the text I brought is from Shemot Rabbah, um, Vayikhuli Truma. It's uh, from the Parsha Truma, and this is the offering you shall take. 
אמר הקדוש ברוך הוא לישראל, מכרתי לכם תורתי כביכול נמכרתי עמה, שנאמר ויקחו לי תרומה. And I find this passage, I'm going to translate it very, very powerful, where God says to B'nai Yisrael, I have sold you my Torah, but with it as it were, I've also been sold. As it says, ויקחו לי, take me, God, as an offering. And I find this very, very powerful because um, it, it very much is in line with the Loba Shamayim He, right? This, it is not in heaven. That once God gives the Torah uh, to us, Ultimately, this Midrash compares it to something that is sold. And once it's sold, the seller no longer has any claim over it, none whatsoever. It's the buyer who now owns the object. And what God says here is the Torah, this is God speaking, Kadosh Baruch Hu, the Torah is so precious to me, I need to sell it to you because I want you to have full ownership over it. But then I recognize that my connection or my role in this could get lost. Yeah. And so Nimkarti, I've been sold as well. That is God being so vulnerable to human acknowledgement, uh, to the to Bnei Yisrael's uh, finding God in the text or disseminating the word of God in the text. And I'm going to paraphrase the rest of the Midrash, which talks about a king with an only daughter who he marries off to another king. And what's beautiful there is, of course, the king with his daughter and a father and a daughter, and the daughter is dependent on the father until the husband comes. And then the husband has more claim over the daughter than the father does. And in the Midrash, in the Mashal, the king basically says, I can't tell you not to take my daughter. How can I part from her? I beg of you, please build me a little room so that I can come stay with you and be near my daughter. And in the Nimshal, God says to B'nai Yisrael, I've given you a Torah, right? I can't part from the Torah. And I beg of you to make me a space, a Mishkan, where I may live, uh, make me a Mikdash. But notice that the two kings are equals in the Mashal, right? And the daughter is what distinguishes the first king when the second king wants to marry the daughter. But once the marriage takes place, the father who is the king now becomes uh, su submissive or secondary to the husband who's king. And um, I find that very powerful because it speaks very much to, um, to a theology I'm drawn to, which is God in search of man. Of course, Avram Heschel coined these phrases, God in search of man, man in search of God, or people in search of God. And, uh, and this idea that without our searching for God, bringing God's word into the world, then God to some degree doesn't exist. And so we could read God out of the Torah and with this era of biblical criticism, biblical scholarship, we know of right an entire discipline that reads God out of the Torah and that the Midrash recognizes you could purchase the Torah and kind of push God out of the picture. Wow, that's enormously, I, I think, interesting. And the agency and responsibility it gives to each and every one of us to make a sanctuary for God, to take God into, uh, into our practice, into our belief then very much is on us it also speaks directly to what we said before about the creative process that right god wrote the torah but just like all books when you put them out into the world you lose control over them and that you might have had a certain intent or you might have had something in mind but once it leaves you you no longer can uh, can claim any right over it and so god's the same thing about the torah okay nechama to close this fascinating conversation i want to ask you our, our lightning round questions so mm -hmm. are you ready nechama i am ready okay what books are currently on your nightstand? So I always have a number, but um, I have the Dafyomi Masechet Pesachim Schottenstein because uh, <laughs> I'm always trying to catch up and keep All up. All these women have Svarim on their nightstand. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and the other book is a book called A Paragon by Colin McCann, which is a really complicated read. Um, exploring the conflict between Palestinians and Israelis. Oh, wow. And it's told through the perspective, and this is based on um, a, a real story that is woven into the, into the, into the novel. Um, it's a kind of a, a, a fictionalized novel, but, but the characters are real. It's very powerful. And, um, and the Israeli has lost a daughter to a suicide bombing, and the Palestinian has lost a daughter to, as a casualty, um, what you call a collateral damage, mm. um, incidentally shot on her way to school. School and um, and their stories and how they each um, responded to those events and ended up coming together in an organization. And it's a very hard read. My husband started to read it and put it down. Um, I'm finishing it. Uh, it brings up a lot of questions about narrative and identity. And um, and it's you know I, I've become involved in Palestinian-Israeli dialogue, and so it's an important book for me to read. And it's so painful and raw and uh, and difficult. 
Okay, I'm happy we're neighbors. I'm going to borrow that when you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, who would you like to sit down with for coffee? If you could, which you can now. Well, if I could sit down with anyone, it would be with my mother, uh, yeah. who passed away 10 years ago. Oh, uh, I think that, uh, you know, I'll just share that I remember my father, who's a professor of philosophy, we asked him that question, and we thought he would say, like, Plato or Socrates. And he said, my father. And I remember thinking, wow, I never thought of my father as missing his father. His, his yeah. father had died a few years earlier. So I'd say, first and foremost, my mother. Um, if I could choose uh, something perhaps a little uh, further afield, um, I wouldn't mind sitting down with uh, Rabbi Akiva's wife or Burga and getting a sense of what life looked like in the Talmud for women, since I feel like I don't, Yalta would be okay. I mean, I would go out with those three, Yalta, Burga, and, and, and put in, put in some new, new footnotes in yes, your book. Exactly. What is your favorite tefillah? David Hashem Ori I love that. I love uh, Lule Hemanti. Uh, I love a lot of the passages about sitting in the house of God, uh, about looking into your heart to find God. And so while we only say it from Rosh Chodesh Elul until Hoshana Rabbah, um, it, I look forward to it. And when the time comes to finish saying it, I am saddened. Yeah, beautiful. Um, what exotic location would you like to visit right now? Or in general? I would really like to go to the Far East. It's somewhere I've never been. Um, but I have to say, more. I, I, I love Europe, and I love Paris, and I love England. I mean, like I, sometimes something that's closer and a little more familiar uh, can be more, can be more uh, accessible. Any hidden talents, Nechama? Huh. I can parallel park really, really well, which surprises my husband endlessly. <laughs> because I'm not particularly mechanical or good. There are many things I don't do well in the car. I've tried to change a tire (laughs) multiple times. I've taken seminars on how to change a tire. I can't do that, but I can parallel park and back into small spaces. And I'm very proud of that every time I do it, because it's it's not something I I should naturally be able to do. (laughs) I would say, you know. Um, I want us to close the conversation by hearing about one thing that you're grateful for in your life right now. I'm grateful um, really for my health. Um, I have the BRCA gene, and I don't take that lightly. The fact that I think I unfortunately know many women who struggle with breast cancer, and despite the fact that I have the gene and I've taken some prophylactic measures, uh, I have been spared. So I'm very, I, I think about that a lot, you know, as I move into my 50s, thinking about health, thinking about mm-hmm. mental ability. So I'm grateful that I, I am uh, I'm performing still and at the t- still strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very grateful for my garden. If anything has gotten me through COVID, it's been my plants and my flowers and my garden. And of course, I'm grateful for my family because it's a bracha to uh, to have a family and have a family that uh, I'm close with and connected to. So, you know, uh, I would say I'm grateful for so many things, but those are a few that I want to point out. Mechamas, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure this conversation will be enriching and interesting and also and also challenging in good ways um, for everyone who will be listening. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to Sofia Vindish for producing this episode and the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.